With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Know It All. The ABCs of Education. A platform of Allison Brown Consulting. ABC. Where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Remember to listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today, I'm really excited. We're talking about the digital divide. My guest is Catherine Finney, the founder and managing director of Digital Digital Undivided, which develops programs, projects, and forward-thinking initiatives that bridge the digital knowledge gap, particularly for women of color. Catherine is also the founder of TBF Group, which is the parent company of the very successful Budget Fashionista brand, and she is the editor-at-large at Blog Her Incorporated. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for being on Know It All today. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much, Allison, for having me. Well, why don't you start by telling us exactly what Digital Undivided does? Well, to really know Digital Undivided, you have to know a little bit of my my past and why we sort of got started. Um, in the 80s, I'm a Midwestern girl, if you can't tell a little bit about that. Um, hey, go Milwaukee. Um, and I was born in Milwaukee and come from a family that was a history, a long history of blue-collar workers. Like most African-Americans um, who come from the Midwest, and my father was a brewery worker. And in the 80s, the brewery shut down completely, left. Like, literally, they were open one day, and then they weren't. <laughs> and it <laughs> devastated. I know, right? It was it was really something. Um, it devastated not only my family, but the entire community. And as a result, uh, my father found himself as, you know, a high school dropout with, you know, a wife and two kids and, and without a job. But what he did have is that he had an amazing work ethic and he had a very forward vision. And so he found himself at a center called the OIC, which was a series of centers in the 80s. They're still around that was founded by a gentleman named Reverend Leon Sullivan. And there were these sort of community education centers that were formed during the Reagan era to help people transition from sort of displaced, displaced workers transition into other uh, industries, mostly service. But my dad found himself at a data entry class taught by a guy from IBM. And this gentleman took an hour out of time to teach, you know, a bunch of, you know, ex-brewery and factory workers in the hood of Milwaukee. This was deep in the hood. Not the outskirts of the hood, but deep in the hood. (laughs) Data data entry, right? Deep in the hood. Data Mm -hmm. entry. 
And my dad found out that he had an aptitude, and so he got an internship at 37 at IBM. And then from there, got a, a job at Digital Equipment, which was one of the first sort of mainframe companies that then later became a PC company and then was later bought by, you know, 10 other companies. And mm-hmm. um, and then raised, rose to the ranks during his life to become a senior engineer at Microsoft. And then when he passed away, he was um, a director at EMC, which is a large data storage company that's still in existence mm-hmm. and does really well. And I tell that story because that story is the basis of Digital Undivided. We firmly believe that it is skill, not pedigree, that determines whether or not you're going to be successful. It doesn't really matter in the tech industry where you went to school. My dad was a brewery worker. He later went to what was probably one of the first sort of online, offline, you know, adult education colleges called Cardinal Stritch. He didn't graduate from Yale or Harvard or any of those places or MIT or Stanford. But yet he had the skill and he had the drive and he had the work ethic. And he was able to become a top person within these tech organizations. And so mm-hmm. that's the basis behind Digital Undivided, is that we really believe in finding and helping and guiding folks who live in urban communities, particularly African Americans and women, into this tech space, realizing that you don't have to have all this pedigree. We don't care if you've worked at McDonald's. We don't care if you worked at other fast food, if you've never been a part of the active economy. We don't care about that. What we care is that you have to drive and you have the skill. And so that's that's what we do. Um, we like to say that our goal is to save the middle class, but, you know, mm-hmm. that's our big goal. <laughs> I think it's a lot of a goal. <laughs> And I, I especially love the idea of not caring where you came from, you know, that we don't care. And, you know, this is a conversation, you know, full disclosure, between you, a Yale graduate, and me, a Harvard graduate, um, you know, talking about the need for access for all people, right? And so, um, you know, I do a lot of work in schools and with schools to talk about let's, let's come up with some different teaching strategies, right? We don't have to necessarily... Um, teach the very same thing or the very same way every single time to every single student. I think, um, you know, that schools are certainly beholden to a a very complicated web of federal accountability and and state and local accountability that that is um, not helpful in the creativity department. But I think your message of really saying there are students out there, there are people out there who have very um, skillful Abilities, very very um, detailed abilities that can really do some work in the tech world and really get some some traction for their communities, um, regardless of where they went to school, is an important one. Um, will you talk about? You know, I think the idea of college is certainly becoming obsolete in some ways, especially for young successful digital entrepreneurs. That it is is at least changing the idea of college. Will you talk about that a little bit more? Well, I mean, this is as someone who spent a lot of money on college. It, it, it you know, kind of hurts me to say this, but you don't need to go to college anymore to get a job in the tech space. Mm-hmm. That's not a requirement per se anymore. And I think because of that, it's it's sort of changing the relationship between the jobs community and, and universities. 
And what I mean by that is when you're a tech company, and we've considered ourselves a, a sort of edgy tech company and what we do, when you're a tech company, I care about the skills. I care about can you do the job. I care less about who you went to school with. And that's because I'm focused more on product and production and getting things done and producing coding and rapid development. That's more important to me than where your connections are at. Now, where there is an exception to that in the tech industry, and where that becomes important is in biz development sometimes, having those sort of connections and that pedigree. But for the most part, in the more technical aspect of it, I just care can you do it? Can you code? Do you know JavaScript? Are you an amazing front-end developer? Do you know stacks? Do you know how to scale your code? Those are things that I care about. Those are not necessarily things that you're taught in colleges. And, in fact, what we find is, like, a lot of schools are teaching uh, sort of legacy programming like Java. Um, There's a huge difference between Java and JavaScript. Java is more of a platform, whereas JavaScript is a front-end coding language. So, but, but you know, that's one of the things that we see. And so for us, you know, in, in the tech space, it's a real challenge working with universities, particularly when it comes to um, African Americans and particularly when it comes to, unfortunately, HBCU, um, mm-hmm. of just understanding how the system is different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I talk a lot and think a lot about, the academic achievement gap between students of color and white students and between students living in under-resourced communities and students with more resources. And I think the digital divide is very much a part of that conversation and probably should be even more a part of the conversation than it is. So I, I want us to pretend that our audience is you and me 20 years ago, right? So mm-hmm. young, young kids, young black kids in middle and high yeah. school. <laughs> Today, what would you say to us today about being successful in the tech space? Well, I would say that, A, you are technology. This whole digital divide is, I challenge that notion when it comes to us. Because every young kid that I know over the age of 12 has a smartphone. And mobile is beating laptops and desktops. Ask Microsoft. Microsoft mm-hmm. had their earnings report, and it was really not very good, as well as Dell, because they're so focused on laptops and desktops, and people are not using those anymore. They're using tablets and mobile phones. So I would actually challenge this digital divide notion and say, look, every kid I know, every African-American black kid that I know has, over the age of 12, has a smartphone, and that is the future. That is where we're moving is towards mobile. So I would say to them, you are tech already. You're already doing tech. Let's look at your phone. Let's let's look at the source code on your phone so that you can see some of the simple actions that you're doing. You're actually coding. Like mm-hmm. you don't even know it. When you jailbreak your your iPhone, you're actually doing programming to jailbreak mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say to them and letting them see that you are connected with this already. You are not separate. You are actually the future. You're actually in the forefront of this. The way that you're engaging with your mobile phones, that is the future. Everyone else has the digital divide. They're kind of far behind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I love it. So if if we're still talking to 
you know, children of color or children in under-resourced neighborhoods in middle and high school who really want to be successful digital entrepreneurs. And and you let them realize that they already have started. They already are technology. Where do they continue? What's their next step? What what courses should they take? What should they do next? I would say rather than turning to your schools, although a lot of schools are really trying to get involved, um, in this space, I would say turn online. And there are some places, again, you can access it via your phone, or if you want, you can also go to a public library. But there are online courses like Code Academy, Udacity, they have online coding courses that are free and that there are no age restrictions. And you can go on and you can literally learn how to code from your computer. You can do it at school, you can do it at the library, you can do it even from your phone. And that's where I would tell them to go. Um, and then mm-hmm. also pressure your school if they don't have a coding club or a computer science club to create one. But in the meantime, you know, there are so many online resources that are free that are available and accessible. That is what I would push students towards. That's where I would say go, definitely. Mm -hmm. And then bring their parents to them. Right. Because certainly I know parents need to know, (laughs) need to learn um, how to do this work. Uh, So tell tell students, tell the audience about you and how you got your start. I have known you for many years now, and I remember when you were starting the Budget Fashionista. Um, how did you get your start, and, and how have you built to the point that, that you are now? I totally fell into this. Um, <laughs> so uh, I had started, um, I grew up in Milwaukee, was raised in Minneapolis, and went to college um, at Rutgers, and thought that, you know, I was going to save the world. That was my goal. <laughs> and then I realized, you know, in order to save the world, you got to save yourself. And I went to graduate school to be an epidemiologist and saw myself living abroad and, and working and doing what um, I had wanted to do and then had a sick parent and had to come back mm-hmm. to the United States. Um, and then at that point, I had to rethink sort of what I was was doing Um I got married, and my husband suggested we, – we lived kind of far away from all our friends and family and suggested that I start a blog because I was spending quite a bit of money because um, I was bored and I was shopping at King of Prussia. And those of you from Philadelphia <laughs> will understand the draw of King of Prussia Mall. And, um, and I started what became one of the first style blogs. I didn't know that at the time that it was going to be – something bigger than it, than I even could dream of. But, you know, sometimes God has a bigger plan for you than you have for yourself. And yeah. and I'm a perfect example of that. And so the blog led to a book um, that's in its ninth printing. It's been out for almost ten years now. I can't believe that. Um, <laughs> and I know. And um, which led to a lot of television appearances. And so I was on the Today Show quite a number of times. Good Morning America, pretty much every network you could think of. and But I found myself wanting something more um, than to just write about pretty clothes. Like I actually wanted to develop a product. 
And so, and something from my tech skills and background, so I entered in one of the first tech incubators. And tech incubators and accelerators are sort of um, groups, communities that help you sort of build your business. They usually take a percentage of your company. They usually give you some seed funding, and they hook you up with mentors. Well, I entered one, and I was the only black person out of 40 people and one of the only women. I think there was four women. And I faced some real deep challenges that had nothing to do with my skill set, my idea, nothing. It had everything to do with being a woman and being black. Mm-hmm. And so I was wondering, you know, if I have all this pedigree and the skills and blah, 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 and I'm getting this, like what about other people? And where are the other black women? Because I know there's more of us. And so I went on to blog her, um, which is a community of 40 million women who are in sort of the blogging space, and said, you know, I kind of want to do this. And they were like, you know, we think you should do it. And, in fact, we'll support you and we'll help you get it done. And so we started Focus 100, which is an event for black women who are founders or co-founders of tech companies, investors, investors. students, other folks who are sort of in this space. And we started our first conference and not knowing what it was going to become, and it became something huge. And I just remember being in the middle of it, um, interviewing Cory Booker and just being like, I had an aha moment. Literally, I think maybe Oprah popped in my brain, like I had an aha moment of, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, and this is big. This is bigger than me. Like, we have to be involved and engaged in this space. This isn't the future. This isn't a choice. And oftentimes when I talk to our community, people are like, oh, well, I don't want to get involved. It's like you don't have a choice. It's not a choice mm-hmm. anymore. It's not an option to say, oh, I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn computers. Like, it's not an option. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you will not be able to work if you don't. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing that that gap. I, I don't like to use the digital divide. I do like to say digital knowledge gap. Like that mm. we're seeing. Um, and so that's how I got to where I'm at. And, you know, I came on the shoulders of a lot of people. My dad, um, my mother, who to this day supports everything that I do and has been an active part um, in this. My grandmother, um you know, all all sorts of people, other people who came before, all the people who came into the tech space and disproved the fact that, you know, black folks can do science and tech. And, you know, a lot of people have gotten me to where I am right now. And I think mm-hmm. it's my duty to figure out how to get even more people into this space. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I am constantly harping about is diversity and uh, access. So access from exactly what you're saying in that for our very survival and for the the black community and Latino community's very survival, it is important that we be a part of this tech space. It's also important that for the good of this country, the country can be able to relate on a global scale and can incorporate viewpoints that are of varying backgrounds. 
And so mm-hmm. diversity is important in order to make sure that those voices are part of that experience and are, are part of the representation for the country. Um, you know, Justice Sonia, Sonia Sotomayor got in a lot of trouble when she was being um, confirmed to the Supreme Court for one of her comments, previous comments that she made about being, you know, a wise Latina. Um, and in context, what she was saying was that you can't have a court that is only old white men. That that doesn't work. It doesn't represent yeah. all of the interests of the country, um, and it, it doesn't work for the, the law. The law can't develop past that viewpoint, that perspective. So diversity is absolutely important, and so I, I appreciate your story, and I appreciate exactly your mission and what you are doing. I think it's so crucial. Um, I saw you quoted in a story, I think, for the Wall Street Journal, that you were talking about how you were presenting uh, black hair care products to mm-hmm. uh, potential investors and, and how that was received. Will you share that story? That was the incubator. It was, you know, I was a part of this incubator, and, you know, we would meet, and my idea was to do sort of a monthly box service of black hair mm-hmm. care products. Now, mind you, fast forward six years later, that does exist, and there's some great companies that are doing some things around that space. Um, but this was like 2006, 2007. So no, and it was when a company called Birchbox was doing beauty products. They had just started, just just started. And so I thought the idea for black women, knowing how much you spend on hair care, black women make by over 40% of all the hair products in the United States. That's that is huge. huge. Our mm-hmm. population, we're only about 8% of the population. So, mm-hmm. of course, and this was a market, especially in 2006, that was not being served in any way, shape, or form by the digital space. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, wow, this is great. Here's a market, here's an industry ready for disruption, to use all the big terms that VCs and people in the tech world use. And what I found was this clear resistance to the idea from very surprising people. I mean, I had one person, I saved the email, who said that, you know, I don't get the black woman thing. I'm not into the black woman thing. That's what they said to me in the email. And I was like, wow, first of all, that's stupid to put that in the email. Right? I was like, that's stupid to put it in the email. But but at the time, that gives you how dismissive they were of us, that Mm -hmm. they didn't even have to couch their terms like that we were so not involved in presence and a force that they didn't even have to think twice about what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself in this, and I ended up leaving uh, the incubator, mostly because they wanted me to leave, but also mm-hmm. because I felt, and, and what I mean by they made it very difficult for me to stay. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at the time, you know, I kind of wanted to stick it through and fight, but then I was like, you know, is this the correct battle? And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you learn when people are resistant to you being in any sort of situation is to under pick your battles, you know, as as our moms would say. Um, it's so mm-hmm. true. <laughs> moms know a lot, <laughs> and that is so true. And this, this is, can I, do I waste all my energy fighting this battle, or do I think of a different way? And it took me several years to come up with a different way. Interestingly enough, a lot of those same people are coming to us for advice, asking for Mm -hmm. advice and wanting to be involved. Um, And so, but what that highlighted to me was not that black people shouldn't be involved in tech, but that how much we really need to be involved. And also, 
how much this this issue of patterns, and this is something that you hear when you're involved in the tech industry, but basically what it means is um, VCs like to fund people who were successful before. That's their argument, right, to why they don't fund black companies. And their argument is that there hasn't been a successful exit of a black company in tech yet. So they don't. So funding it is a bigger risk than funding 26-year-old white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's been successful exits. And what I mean by what they mean by exit is is that your company was either bought by someone or went IPO, meaning went public, is now listed on the stock exchange. Mm-hmm. The fallacy in that argument is is that only about one percent of the startups created actually get bought or get go to IPO. So it's an unfair sort of system to us. And also, as I said to people, well, that means also 100% of your failures have also been 25-year-old white guys. So, you know, and but here's a but but there is an issue that we have to address as a community, and that is we don't create companies in order to sell them. We don't create companies in order to exit. We often create legacy companies and lifestyle companies, companies that we save and we want to pass on to our kids. We don't create sellable companies in our communities. And that is a barrier to us in the tech industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, what what other kinds of cultural differences do you see that maybe compound access to successful entrepreneurship for young people of color? I think what definitely not creating companies in terms of exit. I think also mm-hmm. our companies tend to be focused more on us and less on creating mm-hmm. a product. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of PR and marketing companies. We really don't need any more PR or marketing companies. Um, we have a lot of consulting companies, but those companies are not companies that you can get funding for. Those are not mm-hmm. companies that you can exit because it's dependent on you as a person. Not, it's not sellable. Someone else can't buy that. It, it will be difficult for someone else to buy your company mm-hmm. um, because you are such an integral part of it. You're the reason why the company is great. Mm-hmm. And so, and that's a, that's a big barrier to us starting. I think also a lot of misinformation about how you start a tech company. Um, we spend a lot of time sort of unraveling sort of the myths that people hear um, there's a lot of people who claim that they know tech and they don't. And the question, I always say to people, ask them this question, what have you built? Give me, like, a site that you have built and owned, like, your company. Then go and Google that site. If that site looks like something a kindergartner could have done, mm-hmm. then you need to not accept that advice from someone. Mm-hmm. If, if if you go to that person's Twitter account and they have, like, five people following them, mm-hmm. or if you notice that they're, you know, they have 50 people following them, but they also are following 50,000 people, which most likely means that they bought those Twitter followers, those are things mm-hmm. that should, should like, pique your, your things. So maybe this person isn't so clear. But there's a lot of misinformation on how you actually start a tech company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you start a tech company by starting a tech company. That's how you start it. <laughs> right. Just do it, right? 
there's no barriers to entry. There's none whatsoever. Right. Um, So I I started Allison Brown Consulting ABC one year ago and started another business, Judicial Clerk Review, in 2008. And my children are now 10 and 7 years old, and they have been on this entrepreneurship journey with me, which has been fun and exciting and a homeschool curriculum like no other. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. one of the things that we like to talk about, and um, we actually watch together BizKids, which teaches financial literacy and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. to kids and really drills deep into how to be a successful business owner. And, you know, just this weekend my daughter started her own dog walking business and both of them have been walking (laughs) and, and very interested in taking ownership of their futures. And one thing that we talk about constantly is financing um, and and mm-hmm. getting finance for your getting financing for your business? Will you talk about you know what what students and and kids, especially in middle and high school, who want to be digital entrepreneurs? What do they need to know to about financing a business? What they should know is that you have to create a product, mm-hmm. meaning something that's external from yourself. That's the first step to financing in, in the tech space. In the tech space, mm-hmm. I want to be very clear. Um, it could be a website. It could be a mobile app. It could be. Um, it could even be like an e-commerce shop where you are selling, you know, other people's products. But it has to be something that's external from you. That's the first sort of step. Mm-hmm. Um, the second step is realizing that you don't need a business plan to do anything in tech. And this is where getting good advice is crucial because I've seen a lot of people telling people you have to do a business plan. No one's going to read that. No investor in the tech space is going to read your business plan. Seriously, mm-hmm. they're, they're just not going to read it. Um, but what you do is you put together what's called a deck, which is literally a PowerPoint slide, maybe 10 to 12 PowerPoint slides. Quickly outlining your market, who you are, you know, basically all the key steps of here's who I'm going to serve, um, here's where I'm going to get my customers, here's who I am, here's how I'm going to market my business to get more customers, and here's where I think it can go. Here's how much money we currently have made, and here's where I think we can go. It's very, very simple. Um, And also realize that most people invest in the tech world, and again, this is very, very different, but this is exciting for us as a community. Most people invest in people in the tech world, not even so much Mm. the idea. And and I think that's exciting for us because, you know, it used to be that way with our community banks where they used used to go Mm. in and, you know, say, hey, I have this idea, here I am as a person, and they would take a chance giving you a small loan. Banking doesn't do that anymore. But mm-hmm. in investment, people are back to taking chances on individuals. And so being really passionate about what you're doing, as well as, you know, knowing the basics of your business, can go very, very far in terms of financing. Mm-hmm. But first and foremost, though, I would say, that before you even put the financing, think of the the idea. And ask yourself, is this big enough? Because one of the things that we hear from investors, we spend a lot of time talking with investors about the challenges of our community, and one of the things that they say is that we don't think big enough. We think very, very small when it comes to the market. We think very small when it comes to our products, and that does not serve us. Mm -hmm. 
And so the first thing I would say is think big. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the the messages that um, I know there have been some entrepreneurship classes that are taught at at the certainly at the college level, um, I'm I'm encouraging more youth at the the high school level. And one of the messages that I think is delivered in the entrepreneurship classes and in the kind of typical entrepreneurship um, MBA kind of track is you have to find your niche, your niche market. How does that jive with you know thinking big? And how does how does that how do you reconcile those things? Well, I think the one thing that people need to realize is that thinking big and niche market are not separate. Um, and oftentimes mm-hmm. niche markets can turn into big markets. And the case in point I would use is what happened with me and the Budget Fashionista. When I started in 2003, people weren't necessarily as broke as they are now. And so mm-hmm. when I started, I was broke, <laughs> but everyone else apparently wasn't. And so when I started, people would be like, why are you writing about budget shopping? I mean, at this time, if you remember 10 years ago, Target wasn't necessarily, you know, the end-all, the be-all. Um, in fact, their first sort of cross, you know, designer for less line happened almost a month after I started TDS. So it wasn't, they weren't even doing that yet. So this whole mm-hmm. concept of budget fashion was really, really new. So, you know, I saw myself at the beginning of this industry where people, it wasn't, no one else thought it was anything and thought it was incredibly niche. What mm-hmm. happened was the world came to me, basically, Um you know, we had the, the economic challenges in 2006 and 2007 and 2008, mm-hmm. and I found myself, oh, my goodness, this is a hot topic now. Like, mm-hmm. and literally, I became the mass market, not the niche market. And all the people who were talking mm-hmm. about luxury and premium stuff then became the niche market. Mm-hmm. So thinking big means thinking several steps ahead sometimes. So, for example... Um, rap music used to be considered a niche market, a very, very niche market. Um, mm-hmm. And certain visionaries got that it wasn't a niche market, that, you know, if you right. think five or ten years ahead, you know, rap music is gonna, it's really taking over. People are really connecting with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can start with niche, but make sure that it's something that you see other people who are not like you also. Like, pay attention to to the trends that are going on out there, outside of you. And one of the ways that you can pay attention to trends is to read. Read a lot. Read stuff that has nothing to do with what you do. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, I always read, like, Slate and Salon and New York Magazine and a Wall Street Journal and New York Times. That's actually the secret of people who are really, really successful, including folks like Jay-Z and including folks like Puff Daddy, is that they will tell you they read a lot. They read Mm -hmm. these magazines. You get an idea of what's next. You start to see where the trends are going. And what you end up finding is that your niche market, you can see like five to ten years later how your niche market is going to become mass market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wish more black folks knew that about rap because a lot of people are making money off that culture that aren't a part of our community. That's right. That's absolutely true. 
Um, so then, you know, why? Why digital entrepreneurship? Why should, for those students who are interested, I think you've given some really good, you know, bits of advice about how to get started and how to, you know, keep going in claiming ownership of the tech space. For those students and, and um, people who say, I don't need it, um, I, I don't, I'm not interested. I just want to go get a good job, you know, have a good job, and retire from that good job with a pension. Why? What do you say to encourage them to think about digital entrepreneurship? I say that that's not the world we live in anymore. Mhm. Yeah, that's what I say. Mhm. Mhm. I said that's not the world we live in. Mhm. So that's, that's that's what I would say. And it's unfortunate because you we don't the world isn't let me go get a job and stay there for twenty years. It doesn't it doesn't work that way anymore. And in fact there's been a lot of again, going back to reading, like mm-hmm. and reading outside of yourself, there's been a lot of articles and discussions on how we're changing to a freelance economy now, a freelance workforce, where mm-hmm. no one's gonna be an employee of a company. We're all gonna be independent contractors. Mm-hmm basically our own mini businesses and, yep. and or, or consultancies. You know, that's the way it's going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for people who want to be, just go and work someplace and stay there for 20 years, I say to them, good luck with that. <laughs> right. So, Kathy, one, as, as, you know, last words of wisdom and words of advice and encouragement Maybe a story or two success stories that you've seen of of black women who have come under your leadership with Digital mm-hmm. Undivided and have and have really seen some growth and success. Well, this I mean, there's a lot, which is it's wonderful. I mean, I, one of the things I would say to people is um, you don't have to be limited by what other people think of you. And so, one of our and what other people think you should do. One of our big success stories. Um, and this person was just success before she came to us, but, you know, we've helped her and she's gone through the roof, is a woman by the name of Monique Clark. Monique was, um, studied engineering, has a degree in engineering, um, was actually like the head of Nesby's student chapter for a really long time. And mm-hmm. she, but she was plus size and found that she couldn't find plus size clothing that worked for her, that was sexy and high quality. And so along with her mother, she started a company called com. Now, anyone who's plus size and who is remotely connected in this space knows who Monice is. Um, and she's grown her company from a little company that her and her mother put together that started on eBay to a company that now has over seven figures and quite a significant amount of uh, VC funding. So that's a perfect example, and it's about plus-size fashion. So talk about a niche market that everyone thought was extremely niche but then later became, you know, mass market since most women wear over a size 12. Um, she's a perfect mm-hmm. example of that. Um, other folks like Rachel Brooks, who was from Chicago, who, you know, had an idea about customization and that, that that was the trend. She saw this several years ago that people are going to want custom items. And stores, especially smaller boutiques, didn't have a solution to offer that to their clients. So her and her partner came up with the solution. And what happened is while they were coming up with the solution and really making inroads in this space, the 3D printing movement 
gained speed. So they actually started something before it became popular and then was able to really capitalize off of that. Um, and, and those are two women that come off. I mean, there's so many other folks. Um, there is Kelly James who started a company called Macaris, which does things in terms of agricultural exchanges and allowing via computers because for whatever reason, the agricultural exchanges weren't connected like the other exchanges are online in terms of like stocks and things like that. And so she came mm-hmm. up with a solution and she's received, I think she's received $2.5 in funding for her company. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these are all examples of people who are doing really great things. And some of the things, again, like it could be start with what you know and your own passion. It could be that, you know, I wear a size 11 in shoes and I just can't find any shoes for myself. I'm going to create a solution for me because I want to find shoes. You know, it could be looking at your current job and finding, you know, inefficiencies. Like, this is very inefficient how we're hiring people. You know, I think I could come up with a solution to do it better. You know, and making sure that you capitalize off of that. I mean, I, I, I feel like for some people, we, for our community, that we feel like this tech entrepreneurship is only available to a certain group of people, and it's not. We are tech. I think that is the perfect closing note. Thank you so much. My, my guest is Catherine Finney. She's the founder and managing director of Digital Undivided. You can find out more at digitalundivided.com. Thank you so much for being here, Kathy. Thank you. You, our audience, are now officially certified know-it-alls about not the digital divide, but the digital knowledge divide. Thank you for that correction. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook. And read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.